Let me ask you all a question. What would it take for you to sacrifice everything? What would it take for you to lay down your life? What would you be willing to die for? In the late 1800s, our ancestors were confronted with these questions and had to make a decision. A colonial monster was at our gates and this beast sought to enslave our people. They chose to fight for their freedom. They chose to fight for their families. They chose to fight for their land. They chose to fight for our independent future and sovereignty. They chose to fight for Ethiopia. When we talk about the Battle of Adwa, we are talking about one of the most significant events in human history. We are talking about a nation of warriors who refused to submit and compromise their sovereignty. What Ethiopia was able to accomplish at the Battle of Adwa shocked the world and became a beacon of hope for all oppressed people around the world to keep fighting for their freedom and independence. Ethiopia inspired the downtrodden, the hopeless, the subjugated to rise in unity. The Battle of Adwa is David versus Goliath. It is the story of the underdog coming out on top. The Battle of Adwa checked the lie of European racial superiority. It crushed the invader and shattered the belief that Africans were inferior. The world stood by in astonishment as Ethiopian warriors decimated a colonial power and brought Italy to its knees. What our ancestors accomplished at the Battle of Adwa is the reason we Ethiopians today hold our heads up with pride and dignity and has embedded a deep sense of independence in our psyche. A belief that against all odds, we too can persevere and be victorious like our ancestors were on March 1st, 1896. How exactly did Ethiopia accomplish such a stunning military defeat? What events led up to Adwa? What exactly happened at this legendary battle? And what was its significance? Lay back and relax. We have an amazing story to share with you all. So it's the late 1800s. Otto von Bismarck, the first chancellor of Germany, has organized the Berlin Conference where a room full of Europeans is carving up African territory like a cake and determining the future of our continent under their rule, effectively kicking off the scramble for Africa. Five and a half thousand kilometers away, Menelik II, king of the province of Shoa, in the southern fringes of the Ethiopian Empire, sits cross-legged in a dimly lit hut. Menelik, the king of Shoa at this time, is barely 35 years old, and his face is marked by deep pitted scars, which were the remnants of a bout of smallpox he had at a young age. This gave the young monarch a rugged appearance and a hardened look, which masked the fact that Menelik was actually known to be quite sensitive. The French geographer Alphonse Aubrey, for example, commented on Menelik's expressive eyes as, quote, quite beautiful, intelligent, and kind. The British diplomat Sir Reynold Rod recalls Menelik's face as, quote, being full of character and quiet power. His manner was, quote, dignified and at the same time cordially unreserved. Sitting across from Menelik in the dimly lit hut was the young Swiss engineer Alfred Ilg, who in contrast to Menelik could be mistaken for the guy who does IT tech support at your local Apple store. He was soft-spoken, broad-shouldered, and a young man who wore wire spectacles and had a full beard. Alfred Ilg at this time is barely 25 years old and he left Switzerland to the Red Sea looking for the promise of work and he was inspired by another famous Swiss who had found his fortunes in Africa, Werner Munzinger, who worked under Khadiv Ismail of Egypt and became the governor in Egypt's Red Sea and Sudanese territories. Alfred Ilg was much more realistic and pragmatic than Munzinger and when he finally made his way to Ankober and was granted audience with King Menelik, he offered his services as an engineer to modernize Menelik's kingdom. Both of them didn't know it then, but in that hut, 
in Ankober Shoah, 1878, the young Alfred Ilg and King Menelik were forming one of the greatest political partnerships in modern history. Why do I say that? Ilg essentially immersed himself in Ethiopian society. He mastered Amarinya, he married an Ethiopian woman, and started a whole family in Shoah. By the time he was 30, Alfred Ilg was made the Minister of Bridges and Roads, but he wasn't just the royal architect. He became Menelik's and Queen Taitu's official foreign diplomat and would handle all their business abroad. And the fact that he could speak German, French, Italian, English, and Amharic allowed him to essentially influence European public opinion about Menelik as a brilliant monarch with a modern vision for Ethiopia. Menelik and Taitu would actually give Alfred a little shopping list of things to get for them when he was in Europe, like a printing press, cartridge reloaders, soap, agricultural tools, and even shoes for Queen Taitu. For anyone curious, Taitu wore a woman's European size 39. Taitu also would always sign her letters as, quote, Empress Taitu, light of Ethiopia. Alfred Ilg was indispensable. He elevated from royal architect to translator to arms merchant and diplomat and effectively operated as chief of staff. What was unique about Alfred Ilg, which I absolutely love, is he never had ambitions that were greater than Menelik, and he played his role and wanted nothing more. Look, I'm a big basketball fan, so you guys are going to get a lot of basketball references. So if this is the 96 Bulls, and Menelik and Taitu were Jordan and Pippen, think of Alfred Ilg as Dennis Rodman, an absolute machine who was a key part of the team, but didn't want to be in the star player at all. He would serve Menelik for life. Now, another significant powerful alliance is the union between King Menelik and Taitu Betul. Menelik and Taitu are considered in this era as Ethiopia's power couple, and I mean that in every sense of the word. Both of them are extremely ambitious. Menelik at the time was only king of Shoah, but without a doubt, he had ambitions to become king of kings and emperor of all of Ethiopia. And Taitu absolutely recognized that and would support him to reach his ambitions. Taitu Betul was a northerner from the province of Semin, which bordered Sudan and the province of Tigray. Now, Taitu had Yeju Oromo in her lineage and also was Muslim in her heritage. However, Taitu's family converted to Orthodox Christianity in the 18th century. And since then, her family had accumulated vast amounts of land, property and wealth to the point that Taitu was interconnected to a lot of wealth and resources throughout a network of relatives throughout Gondar, Semien, and Tigray. Why is this important? Well, not only did she provide Menelik with access to resources and wealth, she also gave Menelik legitimacy. And what I mean by that is the two previous emperors of Ethiopia were Nugus Tedros II and at the time Nugus Johannes IV, who were both from the north. Menelik, being from the south, needed support from the northern princes and nobility. And Aitu gave him exactly that. If any of you watch House of Cards, for example, think of Menelik and Aitu like Frank and Claire Underwood, ambitious and calculating, with a union that brought them balance throughout the country, giving them national credentials. By the time Menelik was courting Aitu, both of them had been married before. It wasn't their first mar marriage. Menelik had previously been married to Princess Altash, who was the daughter of Emperor Tedros. Menelik had also courted a woman named Bafina, who was described as having extraordinary beauty and clouded Menelik's judgment to dangerous levels. I think a lot of men throughout history can relate to that one. So when Menelik and Taitu were married on Easter Sunday in 1883, it was careful, calculating, and became one of the greatest political unions in modern history. Now, personally, I loved Taitu. 
she is the queen pin and very politically intelligent. She would tolerate Europeans, but she had a visceral mistrust of them. And it was said that she couldn't stand the way they smelled, which always made me laugh. Now, Taitu was also the one who chose the site for Menelik's capital, Addis Ababa. And as a result, she was heavily involved in the affairs of the capital and would play her position extremely well to influence the court and the policies of the country, particularly when it came to foreign interference. Europeans disliked her, but they couldn't help admire her for being so clever. She wasn't some figurehead. She was a powerful woman in a powerful position, and she flexed her authority. Daitu was not out to please people and genuinely did not care at all whether she was liked or not. They say Menelik was loved because he was gentle and understanding. And in contrast, Daitu was feared. And I love that. Now, you have to think of Ethiopia in the 1800s as a Game of Thrones. Each province of the empire had its regional kings and nobility. However, the strongest and most politically savvy of them all was King of Kings, also known as Nugus Nagast, and was emperor of all of Ethiopia. During our story, the emperor of Ethiopia was Johannes IV, who hailed from Tigray, and he rose to prominence when he helped the British Napier expedition to capture emperor, the emperor at that time, who was Tedros II. As a gift for helping overthrow Emperor Tedros, the British gave Johannes guns, cannons, and a whole lot of ammunition. And with that firepower, he was able to defeat all his rivals in Ethiopia and become emperor. That's how the game was played. And you all need to understand that. Now, I understand this was a quick overview of Johannes, how Johannes rose to power. And we definitely are going to do a more comprehensive individual episode on his story and his come up. However, we just wanted to give you a background as to what Ethiopia was like during this time and how regional kings would scheme and plot to overthrow the emperor to become king of kings of all of Ethiopia. The reason why I mentioned the British Napier expedition against Tedros, which we'll go into more detail on another episode, is because it showed Europeans that in order to conquer Ethiopia and take out an emperor, they had to ally themselves with an internal rival, which the British found in Johannes of Tigray at the time. Now, fast forward to Italy, who became a newly formed state only in 1871. They were late to the colonial race and they were desperate to conquer territory in Africa. And they had their eyes on Ethiopia. We were independent and no European power had claimed our territory. They learned well from the lessons they saw from the British and they set out to work to create a, a connection with an internal rival that would go against Emperor Johannes for them. A classic divide and conquer strategy. Now what's happening in Ethiopia at the time when Menelik was only king of Shah and Johannes IV was king of kings, emperor of Ethiopia. We have to ask ourselves that question. I'm going to pass it along to my colleagues, Sami and Natu are here with me, and they're going to explain to you what's going on. Before we proceed, I believe it's important to give some background and historical context on Menelik's early relations with the Italians and Johannes and the state of the country at the time that led to the events of Adwa and what shaped the situation. But in order to do that, we need to go back and give people an idea of not only how Menelik came into power, but how his forefathers did too and what kind of position he and the state of the country was in preceding the advent of the Europeans and before he became emperor. 
So to start off, Minilik at this time was not yet emperor. He was a Nigus or king of Shoa. Minilik's ancestors were the rulers of the semi-autonomous province of Shoa, who hailed descendants from the son of Emperor Libnadengil, who ruled in 1508 to, 18, to 1540, which was separated from the rest of the country from the 16th century. Starting from the late 17th century, a man by the name of Negasi Christos and his sons started a policy of reconquesting territories in Shewa that were previous that were occupied during the Oromo expansions in the 16th century. Starting from his home base in the region of Menz, him and his descendants gradually started to expand and reconquered several territories. These rulers came to title themselves as Murid Asmach, a military and royal title unique to Shewa. Bolstered by the province's now independent autonomy and gaining strength, it reached its peak during the reign of Nigus Sahel Selassie the Great in the early 19th century. His son, Haile Menakot, became the next king of Shawa, and in turn, his son would become the next king of Shawa and eventually the emperor of Ethiopia. It's quite ironic to think that the region which was virtually independent for over a century and deemed as a threat to the unity of country would later become the political core and center of that same country only a few decades later. Haile Menachot's reign culminated with the simultaneous rise of a man by the name of Ras Kasa of Kwara, or later known as Emperor Tedros. Defeating the feudal lords around him in Begemder, Gojam, Yeju, and Semain, Sedros soon set his sights on Shoah, whose independent status was seen as a threat to his rule. Mobilizing to resist, the Shoan forces were no match for the imperial army of Tedros and were defeated. Hailemelukot's health also subsequently failed, and he soon died after. Demoralized with the death of their king, the rulers of the other districts peacefully submitted, and Minilik, still only a child at the time, was captured and imprisoned at the prison fortress of Megdala. Tedros, however, had treated the young prince very well under captivity, but Shoan aristocrats plotted to break Minilik free from a captivity, and with the help of Guarquitu, queen of the Wollo Oromo, they succeeded. Minilik then marched back to Shoa. But Tedros, who was preoccupied with consolidating his weakening rule over the empire, was unable to act, and after the British Napier expedition of Megdala in 1868, he committed suicide. Hearing this, people of the country jubilated, including people of Minidik's home province. But Minidik himself was reported to have wept for someone who he regarded as a father figure. Upon his return to Shoah, Minidik quickly consolidated his rule over the province and became Nikus. With the death of Tedros, a power vacuum was left to see who would succeed him as emperor, of which Casa Mercha of Tigre would ultimately became would ultimately seize the throne and who would later be named Emperor Johannes. Johannes quickly gained the submission of everyone but Minilik, but, Mini, but Johannes could not act as his rule was immediately threatened with the invasions of the Egyptians under the Khedive Ismail Pasha of Egypt. Mobilizing the forces from all across the country, Johannes confronted the Egyptians and crushed them in the battles of Kura and Gundet in 1878. Bolstered by his victories, Johannes then turned his attention to Minilik. Minilik, in the meantime, had been acquiring additional territories and resources and strengthened his forces until he felt that he was powerful enough to declare himself 
emperor. Unable to ignore the threat, Yohannes marched south to Shawa. Minilik then mobilized his own forces and was prepared to confront the emperor, but upon the advice of his uncle, Ras Darge, who argued that such a large conflict would only cause much bloodshed. Darge, who was Minilik's uncle, was a senior advisor of Minilik's and mentored him since he was a child. He was the only one who would openly scold the young king and whom he regarded as his own son. Listening to his uncle, he submitted, entering the courts with the rock on his back in Makali, symbolizing his hum humility. This decision would later prove to be wise in the long term. Johannes accepted his apology and permitted Minlik to continue to uphold his title as Nugus of Shoah, and to solidify dynastic peace between the two, he wed his son Ras Araya to Minlik's daughter Zira, uh, Zauditu. Given the green light, Minlik soon set his sights on incorporating the territories south of Shoah, which were largely, by at that time, had been inhabited by Oromo and Gurage people. In the meantime, Ras Adal, the leader of the province of Gojam, had also strengthened his province's position and viewed Minlik's territorial ambitions as a threat. The new Nguses clashed in the Battle of Ambabu in 1881, and Minlik's forces, led by his royal Oromo commander Ras Gobena, defeated the Gojami army led by its own Oromo commander Ras Darasu. This left a wide opportunity as Minili quickly capitalized and acquired the Gibe and Limu territories that were previously held by the Gojami ruler. Outraged, Johannes went out to confront them, first pursuing Teklahamanot and devastating much of Gojam. In the meantime, Johannes was prepared to once again confront his old foe before hearing the presence of a Mahadist Sudanese threat in the north. Minilik had previously sent Ras Gobena to confront the Bad Mahadists in Wallega, and with his combined Wallega and Shawan Oromo armies, defeated them in 1888 in the Battle of Guti Dille. But they returned the following year, and after defeating Negus Teklahamanot's army, pillaged Gondar. Johannes went out to fight them, and while winning the battle, was killed. He had made his son Mengesha Johannes as heir, but the latter was unable to assert himself domesticated with the internal and domestic problems in the Tigrayan court, and with no other challengers to the throne, Minilik soon declared himself as emperor. Now as emperor in 1889, Minilik would pursue his policy of expansion and reunification that both his predecessor Tedros and ancestors himself had started. Already in the 1870s, Minilik has subjugated the rule of territory south and west of Shawa, first expanding its rule towards Oromo and Gurage. He then ventured out to capture Harar, which had been under Egyptian control. He soon subsequently subjugated the rule of the Walaita, Sidama, Kafa, Gediu, and various other groups, some who submitted to him and some who fiercely resisted. With that, he made the country amalgamated of several different ethnic groups and regions, not seen since the time of Emperor Amdetion in the 14th century and even beyond, finalizing Ethiopia's political borders. The Italian presence in Ethiopia began in 1869, when the Rubatino Company and the missionary Giuseppe Sapto purchased territory in the port of Asab. However, it wasn't until the British transferred the strategic port of Massawa to the Italians that Italy had a legitimate base to penetrate deeper into Ethiopia to conquer it. 
Johannes was extremely upset when this happened because he honored the Hewitt Treaty to the fullest and evacuated Egyptian troops from Midas-controlled Sudan. And in return, the Hewitt Treaty agreed that Ethiopia was to receive, and I quote, free transit to and from Abyssinia for all goods through Massawa, end quote, which in Johannes's mind essentially meant that the British accepted Ethiopia's claim to the port of Massawa, which would mean that Ethiopia would finally have free access to the sea, something every emperor had strived to establish. Massawa had passed through Ottoman control, Egyptian control, and now was under British control. However, Emperor Johannes claimed Massawa has always been Ethiopian territory under occupation. Emperor Johannes knew the treaty was a joke when the British customs at Massawa denied entry to 50 crates of firearms that Johannes had purchased. Three months later, in October 1883, Johannes was writing angry letters to the British for violating the Hewitt Treaty. Let me read from Raymond Jonas's book, The Battle of Adwa. Johannes says, quote, I am keeping the treaty. I have not broken it. It is a disgrace to break a treaty, end quote. The emperor was furious about the occupation of Massawa, even considering withdrawing from Tigray and moving to Begeminder to rejoin his forces in Amhara. On the Italian side, weather and pressure from the public back in Italy influenced the decision of Italian forces to move deeper into Ethiopian territory. It's also important to note that Negus Menelik of Shoa had signed a treaty of friendship and trade with the Italians, but was utterly surprised by their move to occupy Massawa. He even wrote to the king of Italy saying, quote, as regards Massawa, so that peace and friendship with Emperor Johannes should not be disturbed, it would have been better to come to an agreement with the emperor before occupying this place. At present, I don't know if this news is true. Not can I think why this occupation has taken place, end quote. Now, in Johannes's letter, he promises to honor his part of the treaty and send his troops against the Mahdi of Sudan, which was giving the Egyptians and British huge problems in their colony. But in that letter, he also has a veiled threat that his troops might march all the way to Massawa as well. Now, since the Suez Canal was completed in 1869, the British saw any port in the Red Sea as being vital. And although Ethiopia had historical claims to Massawa, and Emperor Johannes believed that if the Egyptians who were occupying it at that time left, it would obviously be transferred rightfully back to Ethiopia. Instead, the British who controlled Egypt ended up transferring it to Italy. Why? The British didn't trust Ethiopia, and they believed Italy would hold off Britain's arch enemy and colonial rivals, the French, who had occupied Djibouti and could easily move into Massawa if the Egyptians left. Augustus Wilde, who represented the British in the Red Sea region, called British conduct towards Ethiopia and Johannes, quote, a vile bit of treachery. England made use of Johannes as long as he was of any service and then threw him over to the tender mercies of Italy, end quote. Look, anyone who studied European colonialism knows that Europeans, particularly the British, made treaties and broke them all the time. So this isn't something that should surprise you. And although Emperor Johannes was livid, he was also pragmatic and restrained himself from biting off more than he could chew by militarily engaging the British army. So in 1885, Italy controlled less than four square miles of Massawa, but by 1886 and 1887, Italy pushed into the Ethiopian highlands and occupied Sahati and built fortified forts. Now you have to ask yourself, what excuse do the Italians have to enter sovereign Ethiopian territory occupy Sahati and build a fort. So if we rewind back to 1881 and 1883, two Italian scientific missions called the Giletti Expedition and the Bianchi Mission were massacred 
when they made their way through the Ethiopian highlands. The Italians used this pretext to say that their occupation of Ethiopian territory was justified in order to protect their people who wanted to lead scientific missions around Ethiopia. Can you believe the audacity? Well, neither could Ras Alula, Emperor Johannes's best general, who will go into more detail on another episode, but he was essentially the protector of Ethiopia's northern kingdom and one of the greatest generals in modern history. Not just Ethiopian history, but modern history. Ras Alula Ngida is also known as Abba which means father of the dawn, which I think is a dope nickname. Ras Alula was not going to tolerate Italian occupation of Ethiopian territory. And on January 25th, he launched an attack against the forts the Italians had set up in Sahati. The outcome was not good at all. Since the Italians were fortified and Ras Alula's were, armies were lightly armed, Italian casualties were basically none. However, a lot of Ethiopian warriors were either wounded or killed that day. Things changed drastically the next morning when the Itali Italian Colonel Tomasco di Cristoforis led a column of 540 Italians to reinforce the ones that were already in the forts at Sahati. Ras Alula heard they were on their way and decided to ambush them before they reached the rest of their troops in Sahati. What happens next is one of the most legendary events in both Ethiopian and Italian history. Ras Alula hides his warriors about two-thirds the way from Masawa to Sahati to intercept the 540 Italians. You know, you... Our people have that dark coffee-colored skin, right? So we blended right in and camouflaged with the natural shrubs of the hillside. And so 5,000 warriors are hiding camouflaged on either side of this dry creek bed in the hills while the Italian column is making their way to, from Masawa to Sahati. All is going well. All is quiet. The Italians have no idea what's waiting for them. As soon as the leading column of Italians was in range, Alula's warriors rained down absolute fire on them. By the time Colonel Tomasco realized how large of a force the Ethiopians had, it was too late to retreat, and they were encircled by a black wave of Ethiopian warriors. Now, according to Ras Alula's chronicler at the time, and I love this, he says, quote, for Alula and his men, the eager rush of combat was like a bridegroom going to the wedding, end quote. Yo, unpack that real quick. To the Ethiopians going to battle, the excitement of it was like a wedding day for a bridegroom. That is powerful. They wanted all the smoke. And as the Italians fell wounded, Alula's men would close in with rifles and swords and spears, and they'd finish the job. Out of 540 Italians that day, only 80 survived. It was an absolute massacre. This was known as the Battle of Dogali, and it became infamous. And the response in Italy was overwhelmingly in favor of revenge and to avenge the fallen soldiers. They had candlelight vigils and prayers in Italy. And there was even a myth that the Italian soldiers at Dogali stopped fighting at the end and had a final salute to their fallen comrades before they died. I think the most ridiculous myth I heard about the Battle of Dogali is the Italian public comparing the soldiers at Dogali who died to the story of King Leonidas and the Spartans who fought against the Persian army. You all remember the movie 300, right? 
the irony of all of this is that the Italians were the ones who invaded sovereign Ethiopian territory and the Ethiopians were the ones who defended their country. In Rome, the Italian public demanded the building of a monument to, to honor the 500 soldiers who died. And so the Italians used an obelisk they had brought back from Egypt and inscribed the names of the fallen 500 Italians. The crazy thing is there's a Dogali monument in Eritrea today. And I know what you're all thinking. That monument should be honoring the warriors that fought to defend their country, right? And shockingly, it's a monument that honors the 500 Italian colonial soldiers who died fighting to colonize Ethiopia. That really blew my mind. And that monument still stands in Eritrea to this day. The Dogale Monument in Italy stands at the Piazza dei Cinquecento. I'm probably butchering that in Italian. Excuse me for all those uh, listening that speak Italian. Um, the Dogale Monument became the site for annual remembrance ceremonies. I'm not sure if they still do that. And it's also rumored, and this is a rumor again, that the Fiat 500, you know that little Italian-made car? It's called the Fiat 500 in honor of the 500 Italians killed at Dogale. I know that's just a rumor, but next time you see a Fiat 500 driving around, you know, give it a head nod. That's history right there. That's our ancestors saying we will not be conquered. You know, first and foremost, I know you guys have strong, I mean, we all have strong opinions on that, but, or not, not let, you know, so let's steer away from that. What do you guys think about Ras Alula and his decision to go up against Italians and also that he's a governor of, of, of Asmara at that time? Matt, you were saying something about that. You know, uh, Ras Alula as governor of Asmara was known as like a really just governor, especially in uh, comparison like to Ras Walda Mikhail of Hamasian. Uh, but of course, like his reign was of course tainted, like tainted, especially because he massacred some Konama Eritreans. And uh, yeah, but still it was like a saying that, uh, it was literally a saying to be as just as Arula because his reign was just, like, that's what he's known for, uh, you know, towing the line and following the law. Uh, the thing is, um, Ras Arula has a pretty um, controversial kind of past and reputation, uh, partly because of the fact that uh, he was constantly at odds with uh, many of the nobles of Eritrea who ruled the uh, Hamasian, such as uh, Ras Walda Mikael, for example. And uh, this, this goes back uh, in history because if those, for those who don't know, uh, Rasmullah Mikael's father was the ruler of uh, Eritrea, or it was known as the uh, Bahranagash at the time, of uh, the Hazaga clan, basically, who ruled um, the Eritrean highlands. Uh, as opposed to uh, this, the, their neighbors to the south in Tigray. Uh, so a lot of people don't know is that uh, these, these uh, Eritrean nobles of, uh, you know, the uh, Bahar Nagash and so on, they were the biggest allies of Emperor Tedros. So while all of the other Ethiopian regions, Shawa, Tigray, Gondar, Godjam, Wallo, etc., were constantly rebelling against Tedros because he was trying to unify the country, Emperor Tedros's most like their, his most allies, uh, whose most uh, loyal allies were from Eritrea, and when Emperor Johannes came into power, him and Rasalula, they were very upset that the fact that you know these nobles, these Tigrinya-speaking nobles, were supporting, uh, you know, uh, Tedros. So when Emperor Johannes came into power, he he sought to undermine 
uh, a lot of their their imperial status, their relative uh, independent-ish kind of status, which is why he installed Rasalula Abanaga there, and he kind of replaced these rulers, these independent rulers of the the Hazaga clans, and so that ruled over Hamasin and Sarai and etc. Which is why there was a lot of tension between Rasalula and the other. Uh, rulers of uh, Eritrea, the central, the highlands of Eritrea, the, t- the Christian, at least the Christian uh, Tigrinya-speaking Eritreans, and this is partly why um, why they, they have a lot of contempt for him. From uh, this is from what I've read in history and from what local Eritreans have also told me, and uh, this kind of goes into the reason why you know there's a lot. You see a lot of parallels like this in Ethiopia, where. Ethiopians would have local dispute against other, you know, local, you know, fellow Ethiopians, but there would be such a deep hatred against them that they would resort into, I guess, you know, uh, asking the Europeans for help or the uh, the British and so on and so on. And you see the same, almost a very similar kind of uh, pattern with Emperor Johannes and and uh, you know uh, Minilik also in Wakshum Gobeze asking requ- asking and requesting assistance from the British in order to take down Emperor Tidros because they had such deep hatred for him. Uh, considering the fact that he took away all of their imperial and their regional power, so this, these, these, you see these kind of patterns of you know trying to align themselves with you know foreign powers such as the Italians and the British and whatnot. Because back then the concept of race and colonial powers wasn't really a big thing. You know, you just wanted to get whatever help you could get to take down your 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 enemies that you've fought for so long, for decades, for years. You have such deep enmity, you know. So that's why it's it was kind of that's why I think some people we can see things from an outside perspective. Um on why you know why they would choose to ally themselves with the Italians, why they don't why don't they hate the Italians as much as Ras or Alula when it's we. It, it's not. It wasn't that uncommon, you know, uh, from a cultural perspective and from a, a historical perspective. I just wanted to, you know, speak on that a bit, for those who might not know. Oh yeah, and you know, there's like uh, Rasalula is also uh, of humble origins, so that often like had him uh, pitted against like the nobility, like the Mekwanent and the Mazafan. So elitism that was also in play, you know, the fact that he came from a humble, he came from the son of a farmer. You, how can this son of a farmer ruler uh, rule over us when we're come from a royal dynasty? There was also those kind of elements for sure. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. Wow, that's that's actually fascinating. Like I had no idea. That's that's amazing, and I think that goes to show that you know, if the Italians really studied these rivalries, these internal rivalries, or any anybody from the outside could really come in and exploit that. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen as we continue with this story. Absolutely. And that's something that they tried. Well, they kind of, the thing with the Italians is what they already, they assumed that these divisions were present and they were, they were assumed that they were, um, they were deeper than they they initially thought they were, which is why they were just like, look at these primitive Ethio- these African tribes and these leaders fighting over each other. We don't need to we don't need to dig deep because they're they're already there. Not to say that they haven't tried, but not as much because they assume. But they underestimated eventually, of course, as we will go on later, of uh, just how you know how we'll be able that we as Ethiopians and uh, you know in general can you know 
throw these tribalistic rivalries, these political rivalries uh, in the face of colonial invaders. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So how does Italy respond to this shattering defeat? Italy was seeking to have Ethiopia pay for the 500 soldiers she lost and demanded Ethiopia give up territory as retribution. Look, you guys are going to hear me say this a lot during this podcast, but my God, the audacity. Picture this. A group of people who are armed come into the front yard of your home and they build a fort. You respond by kicking them out of your front yard. They get mad and say that they demand you give them the right to your front yard as retribution. But I'm sorry. Are you insane? Like Emperor Johannes was in no mood whatsoever and wrote a letter writing, quote, a man came from the Italians as a friend, writing affectionate letters and bearing some presents to spy out my own country. But when he came where the Egyptians had been, he said, we shall occupy this. Then I said, what have you to do with my own country? They came by force and made in two places forts. Ras Alula went to inquire what business do you have to do with other people's country? End quote. Johannes did what any Ethiopian patriot would do and defended Ethiopia. Emperor Johannes put his full support behind General Alula. So to patch things up, Britain sends Gerald Portal, that's P-O-R-T-A-L, to speak with Emperor Johannes on behalf of Italy. And mind you, Britain had already broke the Hewitt Treaty. So Johannes had good reason not to trust the British. And Portal would come to Johannes with a list of demands from Italy that included territorial compensation, including Sahati, Dogali, and more Ethiopian lands. But to get to Johannes, Portal had to first go through Ras Alula, who was the ruler of Asmara at the time. Now, Alula is a legendary fighter and took his role as defender of Ethiopia very seriously. And as a legendary fighter, he is enshrined as one of the greatest patriots in Ethiopian history. Augustus Wilde, another British diplomat in the Red Sea, greatly admired him and describes him as, quote, he was very good looking, with good eyes, well-shaped nose, and very white, perfect teeth. And he had short, black, wavy hair. Alula was charming, a fine storyteller, with a keen sense of humor and broad-minded views. Alula's vision was inclusive. His inner circle included both Muslims and Christians, end quote. Portal received an audience with Ras Alula in his compound at Asmara. Now, I'm going to say this a lot, but Portal's first encounter with Alula is straight out of a movie. There's going to be a lot of parts in this story that are cinematic, but this right here is one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Portal enters Alula's main hut in Asmara, and the room is dimly lit, and it takes a bit of time for him to adjust to the darkness. And when his eyes finally adjust, what does he see? Alula sitting cross-legged, dressed to impress. He's draped in purple silk with gold embroidery. And he has a Martini Henry rifle and a curved sword within arm's reach. And he's flanked and backed by a court of 70 warriors. Along the walls of the hut, Portal sees animal horns from which weapons and shields are hanging. To me, this is the ultimate flex. Imagine being Gerald Portal in this moment. This is so intimidating. Portal says he was deeply impressed with Alula's face. Portal goes on to say that Alula was much darker than most men of Tigray, and he was mesmerized by Alula's eyes and pearly white teeth. Portal says, I quote, I had seen such eyes in the head of a tiger or a leopard, 
but never in that of a human being, end quote. So Portal begins the meeting by the usual exchange of gifts and gives Ras Alula Winchester repeating rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition, which at the time was an upgrade to Alula's Martini Henry rifle. But Alula, Alula just doesn't care. He pretends like this is nothing to me. When Portal finally gives the Italian demands for more Ethiopian territory in compensation for what happened at Dogale, Ras Alula, as we can all guess, flat out rejects their demands and says there will be absolutely no occupation of Sahati. And, us, and he says one of my favorite lines ever, and I quote, the Italians should come to Sahati only if I, Ras Alula, can go become governor of Rome, end quote. Like this speaks to my soul and that independent nature of Ethiopians. How dare you demand to occupy and govern my lands? How about I pull up to Rome and run your city? No, I didn't think so. So eventually, Porto was allowed to proceed to Lake Ashange, where Johannes's army was preparing to move north in early December. Gerald Porter recounts standing for four hours watching the Ethiopian warriors march past. He writes, quote, Beach and I made a most careful calculation of the numbers of persons who marched past us that morning. At a very low estimate, we calculated the numbers to be no less than between 70,000 and 80,000 per persons. About the middle of the throng rode the king himself, surrounded by a picked body of cavalry. He was mounted on a handsome mule and was dressed in the usual Abyssinian red and white shama, a fold of which concealed all the lower part of his face. The only distinguishable mark of royalty being the fact that he kept the rays of the sun from his august head with a red silk umbrella, end quote. You know, I like directly quoting from the eyewitnesses because it paints a picture for all of us. You feel me? You get to envision what it was like back then. So this was the first time Portal witnessed an Ethiopian army at full strength. And he realized then that Ethiopia would not be conquered as easily as everyone thought. In my opinion, the European belief that Africans were primitive and could easily be overpowered by European might was given a rude awakening that day. So upon meeting Emperor Johannes, Portal again presents him with gifts, the same way he did for Ras Alula. The gifts given to Johannes were a Winchester rifle, just like Alula, and a very large telescope that could be used to observe things on land or in the stars. Upon hearing Italian demands for territorial compensation, Johannes responds, quote, I am the aggrieved. Why then should I be punished? End quote. Johannes sends Portal back and he marches that massive army all the way to Ginda, which was a few hours from the Italian positions in Sahati, where he planned to decimate the Italians once and for all. Now, as Johannes prepared for the showdown, he found out that the Sudanese Mahdi defeated the king of Godjam, Negus Teklam Haimanut, and marched onto Gondar, the ancient capital of Ethiopia, and essentially burnt down most of the city. Now, bear in mind, Emperor Johannes is a staunch Ethiopian patriot, and he takes his role as defender of Ethiopia extremely seriously. So what would you do if you were Johannes? Your army's preparing to wipe out the colonizer. However, the western part of your kingdom has just been invaded and the Mahdi just marched unchecked into one of the most significant cities in your empire and burnt it to the ground. Imagine what was going through his head. That's a tough decision. Against the advice of Ras Alula, Emperor Johannes decides to turn his army west to deal with the Sudanese Mahdi first. By April 1888, Sahati and Asmara have been completely evacuated. Now, 
if we shift directions simultaneously, the Italians were in the south working extremely hard to court King Menelik to turn against Johannes, who, as we all know, had always grand ambitions to become king of kings of all of Ethiopia and replace Johannes. Pietro Antonelli was the Italian agent that was tasked to bring Menelik on Italy's side. So when Johannes eventually was taken out, the Italians thought they would have a friendly monarch on the throne. Now, remember, Ethiopia in this day and age, and I'm going to say this a lot, is a game of thrones. And strategic alliances are made in order to overthrow rivals. And Menelik was no exception. In fact, he was playing the Italians like a crowd. For all those who don't know what a crowd is, it's a traditional Ethiopian harp. And he was playing beautiful music on that while trying to finesse the Italians. Why I say that is because Menelik was showing his diplomatic genius and that he gave the Italians lip service and false claims of loyalty when he actually did nothing to move against Johannes, who had his own problems in the north dealing with the Sudanese Mahdi, the Italians, the British, the Egyptians. In return for Menelik's quote-unquote loyalty, the Italians supplied him with a ton of modern weapons, giving his soldiers a, a scary amount of firepower, which the Italians figured he would use against Johannes eventually and how wrong they would be. While Johannes was preparing to fight the Sudanese Mahdi, Pietro Antonelli just arrived in Addis Ababa with, with 4,700 Remington rifles and 220,000 cartridges. And that's just the beginning. Now, our story shifts to the western part of Ethiopia, where Johannes' army is now engaged in battle with the Sudanese Mahdists. Again, we're going to have a whole episode and podcast about this, about Johannes and his brilliant military victories, but we're going to have to really condense that for the sake of this story. Now, the fighting was going well, and the Ethiopian army was winning, but things went south and did a 180 when Mahdist rifle hits Emperor Johannes in the abdomen, and he's wounded. As Johannes lays dying, he proclaims his son, Mangesha, the heir to the imperial throne of Ethiopia. The loss of the emperor demoralized the Ethiopian army and they began to retreat and a circle of followers covered Emperor Johannes' body. Unfortunately, the Mahdists caught up with them and managed to steal Johannes' body and took his head as a trophy, which they displayed on top of a pike in Khartoum. And so this marked the end of one of the greatest Ethiopian emperors in our history who died fighting at the head of his army, defending the sovereignty of our country. We as Ethiopians salute him and pay our respects forever to the emperor Johannes. Now, at this point, a power vacuum ensues. And although Ras Mangesha, Johannes's son, was named heir to the throne, in Ethiopia's Game of Thrones, you had to fight and earn that title. And if we shift our story south, Menelik and Taitu are in the town of, well, at this point, they're in the town of Wichale, which is in the north, but they're visiting one of Taitu's properties when the news of the death of Johannes reaches them. This was the moment Menelik had been waiting for. He proclaimed himself Nugus Nagas, the king of kings, emperor of Ethiopia. Now the Game of Thrones and who would become king of kings has kicked off as regional kings compete to overpower one another and take the throne. Now, before we talk about expansion, we have to ask ourselves how Menelik's army was so dominant and what made his military strength something to be revered and why he was able to defeat all his rivals and conquer the neighboring kingdoms and provinces more successfully than any other emperor in Ethiopian history. The answer is guns. 
Guns, baby, guns. Menelik was no fool and was watching the European powers encircle Ethiopia. He could see the Italians and the British on the Somali coast. He could see the British in the West and the South conquer Sudan and Kenya. He could see the French encroaching on the Somali and Afar territories. And the Italians had used Emperor Johannes's death as a perfect opportunity to penetrate deeper into Ethiopian territory. And not only did they occupy Masawa and Asab, they had gone deeper into the highlands and occupied Sahati and Ras Alula's capital and base Asmara. Menelik knew without a doubt they had their sights on conquering all of Ethiopia. So with great foresight, Menelik began systematically and strategically importing a ton of modern guns. When I say a ton, I mean a ton of guns and ammunition. Menelik started importing a steady stream of guns from the ports of Obak and Tadjura in modern-day Djibouti. Back then, it was French Somaliland. Menelik knew the French and the British were historical enemies. So he knew the French would be more willing to arm Menelik to check their bitter, bitter rivals, the British, from expanding farther than Sudan and Kenya and gaining more territory. So you have to understand that historically, guns were the first mechanical instruments Ethiopians became familiar with. For example, the Amharic word for screwdriver is taminja mefcha, which literally translates to the instrument for unscrewing a gun. One of my favorite stories is when an Ethiopian delegation led by Dejazmach Meshesha visited Hamburger. The Germans showed them some of their most modern arms, like, wow, we're going to impress these primitive Ethiopians with our modern guns. And they were shocked that the Ethiopians already knew how to handle them because they had already so many of these guns in their country. Can you imagine the Germans at the, light, at the time were probably like, what's going on? You guys know how to use these guns better than us. Guns also have their place in Amharic poetry, as illustrated by Ato Alamayo Mogus's poem, quote, a person carrying a Moskob, which is a Russian gun, should not pass by my door. A person carrying a Wichafo, which is a Wetterly rifle, let him make his voice heard to me. A person carrying a Minisher, let him come himself. A person carrying an Albin, let him be my lover. Should he want to be my husband, let him buy a Mauser. You know, Amareng, Amareng, you know, Mozart Amareng. That's a traditional war song we still sing, I'm pretty sure. I could be way off, I don't know. Every year, Menelik increased his firepower. And as Italian ambition to colonize Ethiopia became more and more obvious, he put pedal to the metal and used every avenue and agent to bring guns into the country and into the hands of his warriors, particularly Alfred Ilg. Remember we talked about him, how important he would be at the beginning of the story? And this was one of the many reasons he was invaluable. He was an amazing arms dealer for Menelik, who was securing guns for Ethiopia from European merchants. Now, through a decade and a half of systematic arms purchase, Ethiopians were armed to the teeth. Powell Cotton said Menelik could put 500,000 rifles into the field and 100 pieces of mountain artillery. Add that to thousands of warriors on horseback, Menelik's army was literally a force that could match up with any European colonial army. Italian journalist Mercatelli reported on October 13th, 1895, quote, Shoah is ready for war. The troops of the Negus are all armed with breech loaders, Remington, Waterley, or Grass. They have at their disposal much ammunition, end quote. An American observer, Donaldson Smith, after seeing the firepower in Ethiopia, stated, quote, any nation attacking them would have its hands full, end quote. 
John Boys proclaimed, quote, practically all the Abyssinians I met were armed with rifles. On every hand, I saw modern firearms. The Abyssinians are the best armed native race in Africa and could put 100,000 men in the field. 80% of able-bodied males have a rifle, end quote. Now, if we shift our story to the north of the Ethiopian Empire in Tigray, where Ras Mangisha and the Italians were hard at work to counter Menelik in the south, after the Battle of Dogali, Italy was out for vengeance and wanted to make Ethiopia pay. Their biggest dilemma was how could they prevent Italians from losing their life, but at the same time compete with the endurance and warrior spirit of the Ethiopians. The answer was recruit Ethiopian warriors to fight on the side of Italy. I mean, why not? Europeans all over Africa were doing the same thing. So why should Italy be any different? In fact, Egypt, when attempting to invade Ethiopia, actually used veterans from the American Civil War, which a lot of people don't know. They also recruited Danes, Germans, and Austrians who fought in European wars and had experience. So the Italians put out a recruitment calls from village to village, and they didn't discriminate in ethnicity or religion. Everyone who was fit enough to fight and wanted a decent wage was welcome. After a brutal training period, the best recruits were chosen to fight for Italy. They were given a uniform, which was a white tunic and calf height white pants with a belted smock. And the outfit was completed with a short jacket with embroidered arabesque flourishes and to finish it off, a red fez cap. Now, these soldiers were known as the Ascari Battalions of Italy. And if you Google them, you can see what their outfits actually look like. The sash that they wore would signify their rank in the Italian colonial army. So red would be the first battalion, then blue, then purple, then black for the third, second, third, and fourth battalions. A lot of these men joined for various reasons. Some were escaping a criminal past, some were refugees from the slave trade. Some just wanted to start over and, become a, and becoming a soldier meant that they had job security with food, clothing, and steady pay. Soldiers would sign up for a year and they would receive 1.5 Italian lire per day, which was a fraction of what a European soldier would receive. But in Africa, that was a lot of money. So enough for a man to support a family, buy a mule and other work animals and start farming. Not to mention in Ethiopian society, being a warrior is a sign of prestige and honor. So the Italians, in return, got soldiers who would fight in the name of Italy and could match Menelik's soldiers in strength, speed, and endurance, and could handle the brutal highlands of Ethiopia, which the Italian soldiers couldn't handle at all. It was no secret European soldiers couldn't handle the high elevation of Ethiopia. However, Ascari units, being commanded by Italians on mule or horseback, could move with crazy speed. Paul Loribar recounts that his Ascari units could cover over 30 miles per day in nine, 12, and 50-hour, 15-hour marches. To give you a comparison, Napoleon's armies could occasionally cover 25 miles per day, and they were known for being very fast. The Ascari units made that look like a cakewalk. They were much faster. So this now meant that Italian forces could match Menelik's Ethiopian forces in speed and agility. And this led to Italy controlling a lot of territory under their rule. By the end of 1895, Italy had over 10,000 Ascari Ethiopians fighting for their army with more arriving every week. Now, Menelik understood that there were two versions of the Treaty of Wichali, and he would in no way surrender Ethiopian sovereignty. However, he was in no rush to denounce 
the treaty until his rival, Ras Mangesha, was crushed. Because he knew if he denounced the treaty immediately, it would mean the Italians would start arming Mangesha to fight against Menelik to become emperor. Instead, he counted on the Italians and Mangesha to eventually start fighting as they occupied so much of Mangesha's territory. Because you have to understand, at the time, Menelik has no authority or control or power in Mangesha's northern kingdom of Tigray and uh, where the Italians are. And in the meantime, Menelik could consolidate his power and prepare his army to crush Italy. So on January 1st, 1890, Italy announced the formation of the colony of Eritrea. Now, the plan was to turn Eritrea into a settlement colony for Italy's booming population. And on November 10th, 1893, nine Italian families, 50 people in total, were brought to Eritrea. You see, Italy Italy had a growing population. Every year, Italians would emigrate in mass to America, to Brazil and Argentina and other places in the Americas. And Leopoldo Franchetti, a member of the deputy of chambers, had a vision of creating a settlement colony in Eritrea. Franchetti offered and promised Italians 50 acres of land in Eritrea in perpetuity as long as they occupied and cultivated the land for five years. And to fulfill his vision, almost 1 million acres of the finest farmland in Eritrea was taken from the local population and set aside for Italian settlers. Now, seven families came from Magenta, and the other two families came from the Sicilian towns of Pedara, which is near Catania. Adi Ugri, which is about 30 miles from Asmara, was chosen as the site for the new settlement. And the new village was baptized Umberto I in honor of King Umberto of Italy in May 1893. A few months later in July, Rosalia Oldani, Eritrea's first settler baby, was born. You might wonder what happened to the settlement colony. Well, the local population in Eritrea couldn't believe that the Italian rule meant that a million acres of their best farmland would be taken from them and given to whites. They began to pressure and move in on the settlements, and the entire project was abandoned, and the settler families went home. Now, immediately after the creation of Eritrea, General Baldassare Orero took residence in Asmara, the new capital of Eritrea. Now, General Orero and Menelik were actually on good terms and had the idea of marching his military into Tigray to de- better defend the Eritrean colony. And on January 26, 1890, General Orero occupied Adwa, which was a direct invasion of Ethiopia. This put Menelik in a dangerous position because although he used Italy to arm his warriors, build his treasury, and maneuver against Johannes, he now risked, he now risked looking like Italy's puppet, which was unacceptable. Instead, Menelik played his cards perfectly by marching his army north to give the appearance of meeting the general Orero in Tigray. Why is this important? It meant that his rival Mengesha was now caught in between Menelik's monster army and the Italian army, and he had to choose between the two. So now, in February, Ras Mangesha sets out with an entourage of 300 men to meet Menelik and submit. The traditional method of submission in Ethiopian customs is to carry a rock on your shoulders as a symbol of subordinate status. Now, the Battle of, game of, of the Game of Thrones and succeeding Emperor Johannes was officially over. Menelik had won and was officially recognized as the King of Kings, Nagus Nagast, Emperor of Ethiopia. This 
was the first display of submission. Barras Mangesha would ceremonially submit again in Addis Ababa in June 1894, where Ras Mangesha and his lieutenants, including the legendary Ras Alula, walked to Menelik's palace holding a rock on their shoulders again in the traditional method of submission. Drums and horns played and Menelik's warriors fired their rifles in the air while Mangesha removed the stone from his shoulders, placed them at Menelik's feet, and him and his entourage prostrated themselves in front of Menelik, completing the ceremony of submission. Italy, on the other hand, was livid. They were absolutely pissed off because General Orero had marched on Adwa and occupied Tigray against their orders and played into Menelik's hands. And what that meant is they lost Rash Mangesha as a potential ally. As a result, General Orero was fired and General Oreste Baratieri was now appointed as his replacement. General Baratieri, just to give you a background, was a veteran of the war to unite Italy and was part of the famous Red Shirts who defeated Sicily and brought them into the Italian Empire. General Baratieri was a different animal entirely. By the time he arrived in Masawa, he had studied Ethiopian ethnology extensively and created partnerships with the local Tigrayan nobility to form alliances against Menelik. His pitch every time was that Italian rule was better than Ras Mangesha, who was heavy-handed. And of course, the Tigrayan chiefs feared Menelik as being an emperor from the south. So this showcase, the showcase figure on General Baratieri's side was a figure known as Bahata Hagos, who was actually a Shifta. And Amharic, Shifta translates to bandit. So that's the direct translation into English. Now, the Italians allowed Batahagos to have authority over the Italian administrative capital, Saganieti. And this partnership gave Batahagos more power and legitimacy than ever before by allowing Bata to collect tribute of 10% from the local population. In return, Italy gained more firepower from Bata's soldiers. A funny story about Batahagos is he actually fell in love with a woman called Rosalia Pianavia. Pianavia, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, the wife of one of the Italian colonel's wives who actually admitted to being fascinated with Batahagos and would literally, he would literally flex in front of her with his soldiers marching in front of him, playing music through their horns to impress her. I can't say for sure, but it sounds like Bata and Rosalia were getting busy. It sounds like they had something going on, but that's another story. That's, that's pure speculation. <laughs> Even though Italy legitimized Batahagos and turned him from a bandit to a ruler, the relationship soured. In December 1894, Batahagos went for a dinner at one of the chief Italian residents in Saganieti. At the end of the dinner, when he and his soldiers got up to leave, Bata turned on his Italian host and tied him up. The Italian commander shouts, quote, go ahead, but Italy is great, end quote. You know what Batahagos yells back at him? Quote, Ethiopia is greater still, end quote. I love that. Bata Hagos switched sides and chose Ethiopia. Bata beat his drum and called his men to get ready for battle with the Italians. We have to ask now, what set Bata off? Why did he turn on the Italians? Bata saw the Italian settlements. He saw the Italians taking the best land in Eritrea for themselves, as well as the women, and turning them into their mistresses. Nation, land, and women were being taken right before his eyes, and his collaboration facilitated the Italian colony of Eritrea. His pride as an Ethiopian left him no choice 
but to fight back. When asked why he rebelled, Bata says, quote, when the white serpent has once bitten you, you will search in vain for the cure, end quote. Now, Major Pietro Toselli was sent to deal with Bata with 1,500 men. Bata had 700 soldiers. Now, Bata, Bata's forces were no match, unfortunately, and he died in a rain of bullets at a place called Halai. Yes, he sided with Italy. Yes, he was a bandit, and the local population ended up despising him. And yes, he facilitated the creation of Eritrea by siding with the colonizers. However, in the end, Batahagos chose to fight and die for Ethiopia, and we must always honor that legacy. So let's talk about the ambush of Ras Mangasha. Now, as we've seen on June 2nd, 1894, the Rases, meaning head, a rank somewhat equivalent to Duke or Prince Mangasha, Alula, Wilder Mikhail of Amasien, and Hagos of Tambien, entered Addis Ababa with rocks on their shoulders as a sign of repentance and submission, submitting to Emperor Menelik II in the same way that Menelik and Taklaimanot, as King of Shoa and King of Godjam respectively, had submitted to Emperor Johannes IV, Ras Mangasha's father. Now, the day after Dejjah's march, meaning a commander of the gate, equivalent to general, Baatagos died, Ras Mangesha assembled his troops at Ntisho, to the east of his capital at Adwa, under the guise of taking precautions against the Muslim dervishes in Sudan. His forces, estimated at 19,000, massed near the frontier of the newly proclaimed Italian colony of Eritrea. Seeing this, Oreste Barateri, who was commander of the Italian forces, moved a force of 9,000 men southwards, completely avoiding Ras Mangesha's army. He simply marched into his enemy's capital at Adwa on 28th December. Now, Ras Mangesha's situation at that moment was somewhat precarious. The locals in Adwa had apparently offered their submission to the Italians. However, his army was still intact. He had the opportunity to do the same thing and march north to retake Asmara. This possibility even caused a reaction all the way in Addis Ababa, where rumors were already spreading that Ras Mangesha had defeated the Italians and moved into Masawa. This, this possibility gave Barateri pause, and so he moved back north and shadowed Ras Mangesha and his forces. On January 12, 1895, General Barateri was able to ambush Ras Mangesha Ioannis and rout him. Now, according to page 103 of Jonas's book, when Mangesha and his men abandoned camp after the Italians had ambushed them, the Italians were able to find several letters in Ras Mangesha's tent. These letters showed that Ras Mangesha was not acting on his own. Rather, his actions, and even those of Dajaj Baatahagos of Hamasien, were conducted with the full knowledge of Emperor Menelik II. Now, following that, the Italians were able to take Adigrat, Aksum, and Adwa, stopping only at Ambaalage nearly doubling the area under Italian control. Ras Mangesha's defeat only served to push him further into the arms of Emperor Menelik II. The quick victories Barateri had scored fooled the Italians into thinking that the victory of Rasalula at Dogali was a mere fluke. Now let's talk about what was happening in Addis Ababa, the Emperor's call to war. On February 12, 1893, the Emperor abrogated the Treaty of Ushale, and notified the King of Italy of his resolve to declare the treaty null. He also wrote to the European powers stating that, quote, Italy was trying under the mask of friendship to take possession of this country, 
my country is strong enough to maintain its independence and it does not care for any protectorate, end quote. When Rashmangesha had been defeated, the emperor did nothing. When he learned that the Italians had extended their occupation of Tigra as far as Ashange, he did nothing. Minlik's failure to act immediately was taken as a sign of cowardice, both abroad and at home. Nagus, meaning t- king, Taklahamanut, Rasalula, Rasmangasha, and even his own wife, Itegetaitu, critiqued him. The situation in Ethiopia was rather difficult at the time. Rinderpest, introduced to the region by cattle imported by the Italians from India, had decimated the Ethiopian cattle, and famine soon followed. Now the emperor withstood the pressure in his court and slowly took steps to prepare for war. In April 1895, he ordered a special tax to pay for rifles and cartridges. He took steps to ally with the dervishes in present-day Sudan, even though they were formerly Ethiopia's enemies, saying, you are black, I am black. Let us unite and hunt our common enemy, end quote. Finally, in late September 1895, Emperor Minlik issued the awaj, the call to war, saying, quote, those who are able-bodied, lend me your strength. Those who are not, pray for the sake of your wife, your children, and for your faith, end quote. Tens of thousands from all over the country answered the call. And by the time the army got to Adwa, it stood at over 100,000 strong. Now, what you have to understand about the Battle of Adwa is that it was preceded by three major military victories by the Ethiopians, a hat-trick of sorts. The Battle of Dogali, the Battle of Ambalage, the Battle or Siege of Magale. Now we're going to talk about the Battle of Ambalage. Rasma Konan, Minlik's cousin and the governor of Harar, was charged with leading the vanguard, over 30,000 soldiers. This decision was apparently influenced by the fact that figures at court, like Itege Taitu, distrusted him and wanted to test his loyalty. He was the Minister of Foreign Affairs and thus had friendly relations with most European countries. Meanwhile, the Italians under Major Pietro Toselli, numbering at 2,000, fortified themselves at Ambalage, 10,000 feet above sea level and naturally fortified. Ambalage was an excellent choice for an advanced position. When Rasmakonen with over 30,000 men arrived at Ambalage, the Italians were in shock. The Italian informants had been feeding the Italians low estimates and false information at Emperor Minlik II's command. Rasmakonen sent word that he wished to resolve things peacefully. Major Toselli sent back word that he couldn't be convinced to leave. He even tried to convince Rasmakonen to betray Ethiopia. At the time, Toselli was writing back frantically to his commanding officer to send reinforcements, saying, quote, sono molti, sono molti, end quote, meaning there are many, many. The Italian forces were bolstered by Sheikh Tala and Ras Sabat, locals who had switched sides, adding around 700 men to his forces. On December 7th, Ras Makonen began his attack focusing first on the traitors who were sure to waver. He directed Raswali to take 7,000 men to attack Ras Sabat on the left. Ras Makonen then moved his own men to attack the center, making an easy target for the Italian guns that fired both shells and shrapnel. His forces suffered the heaviest casualties of the days. 
He then directed Ras Mangesha and Ras Alula to take 15,000 men and attack the Italian right. The tactic, though simple, was a brilliant one. It enveloped the Italians and broke off their retreat to Makali. Due to the nature of the terrain, the Ethiopians had to climb the steep slopes, enduring heavy fire, suffering heavy casualties as a result. The terrain was inaccessible to horses and mules, but no one could stop the Ethiopian fighters from rallying to the help of their comrades. At one point, when Fita Orari, meaning commander of vanguard, Gabeyu Abagora, who was fighting despite being ill, and his men were outnumbered by the Italians, the Ethiopians refused to allow their slaughter and climbed up the steep terrain to save them. Though the battle ended in victory for the Ethiopians, the death of Major Toseli, who to his credit fought bravely even according to Ethiopian sources, was played up as that of a hero. Regardless, the Italian public opinion remained critical of the government's colonial enterprise in Ethiopia. Now, I'll cite what Tzahafitazaz, meaning Lord of the Pen, Gabra Selassie, wrote about the sacrifice made by the Ethiopians on that day, from the Battle of Adwa, Reflections on Ethiopia's Victory by Paulus Milkias. Quote, At the start of the battle, fighters and their commanders moved in every direction. Everyone was running towards his rifle and his cannon. The soldiers were never perturbed by the possibility that they could be cut down by a cannon fire or that they could be felled by a bullet. Anger had set in their minds singularly on protecting the sovereignty of their motherland. Their valor was at its peak. Instead of being distracted by the plight of his fallen commander or even that of his brother, the soldier just went on fighting on his own. The wounded were prodded on and even chastised in the name of God. Those who engaged in combat continued their fight and did not try to save their lives. Those who had exhausted their bullets took more from the waste of their fallen comrades and pursued their enemies and mercilessly slaughtered them. End quote. Now, when the rest of the army had heard that the advance guard had already taken Ambalage, they said, quote, Have we come all this weight without a chance to fight? End quote. Ethiopian morale was on the rise and the battle showed Ethiopia the same way Dogali did, that the European armies could be defeated. As the Ethiopian army under Emperor Milik continued their march north, they sang songs mocking the Italians who thought they could conquer Ethiopia. They sang asking in a skeptical manner, quote, Oh, they crossed the sea on their boats to conquer Ethiopia. End quote. Now, Megale held some significance, not just geographically, as it was ideal for slowing down the progress of the Ethiopian army, but also because under Emperor Johannes IV, it was the imperial capital of Ethiopia. The fortifications the Italians would build up were quite significant. They spread shards of broken glass and pottery on the outer walls to slow down the Ethiopian soldiers, who were mainly barefooted, and they also turned the church into ammunition depot. They pulled down tukuls outside of the walls that might have provided cover to the Ethiopians. They reinforced the 230-foot-long wall 
dug trenches, buried spikes inside those trenches and to impale whoever who fall in, etc. The fortifications they made are described in further detail on page 135 of Raymond Jonas' book. One of the main problems the Italians inside the forts faced was the lack of food and supplies they had. The Italians and their Ascaris were forced to loot the surrounding peasants and arrange foraging parties. The local population had also turned hostile towards the Italians as news of the Ethiopian victory at Amba Alaje spread. The Italians gave out wine, coffee and rum. Cigars and tobacco were reserved only for the Europeans. To boost morale, soon they were shouting, Come Abyssinians, we'll help you find the road to hell. On 19th December 1895, the mood changed drastically. Rasmakonen, governor of Harar and commander of the vanguard, had finally arrived. Rasmakonen set up camp northeast of Megali, cutting off the Italians' route north to Asmara. The Ethiopian vanguard, who were enjoying high morale after their victory to Amba Alaje, now sat in the path of any reinforcements or evacuation. Cordial letters were exchanged, and on December 30th, Rasmakonen asked the Italians for some medical assistance. They compiled and sent a doctor. Lieutenant Muzetti, to treat some of the Ethiopians who were injured at the Battle of Amba Alaji. Now, according to page 137 of Raymond Jonas' book, the Ethiopians sent the doctor back to Mekali with an escort led by one of Rasmakonin's lieutenants. Ato Gyorgis even stayed for dinner, and while Lieutenant Muzetti was briefing Major Galliano with information about the capabilities and size of force under Rasmakonin, Ato Gyorgis was treated to a feast and lots of brandy. After he got drunk, Ato Georgis revealed as a Minilik II's intentions to his hosts, saying that Minilik had artillery and his aim was to enjoy a drink in the governor's palace at Masawa, meaning that the emperor's goal was to drive the Italians not only from Tigray, but also from Africa entirely. That's something rather interesting to consider. Georgis also let it slip that Emperor Minilik and his vassals would arrive soon, augmenting Rasmakonin's forces with 100,000 soldiers of his own. By January 1st, 1896, the Ethiopians had completely encircled the Italians, and at night, thousands of campfires dotted the hillside. To their credit, the Italians and their Ascaris remained defiant, suspending a banner on the walls that said, 1896, Buon Anno, meaning Happy New Year. Regardless of their attempts to remain jovial, they had been completely surrounded and news was travelling quickly throughout the countryside, announcing Minilik's impending arrival. Following the Italian defeat at the Battle of Amba Alage, the Italian government started to understand just what kind of enemy they had made. According to Raymond Jonas in his book, The Battle of Adwa, African Victory in the Age of Empire, the glorification of Toselli and his men's sacrifice masked questions about military leadership and competency. General Aramondi, who was responsible for the idiotic decision of placing 2,000 men in an exposed position miles away from reinforcements, started shifting blame towards General Baratari. Mobilization began in Italy, and around 40,000 men began to ship from Naples after the news of Amba Alage reached Italy. The aggressors were painted as martyrs defending their country and its interests. An additional 6,500 soldiers and tons of equipment and supplies shipped out starting January 12. Meanwhile, Major Giuseppe began fortification of Megali. The Italians who survived at Amba Alage arrived in the night, so by the time the Ethiopian army arrived gasping, dead, all dead. 
majors, captains, lieutenants, all dead, everyone. After exchanging several letters, Rasma Konin on January 3rd finally said, Remember Ambalaji? Give me the forts and do not waste any more blood. I will escort you to Masawa and send your backs there too. They refused, and on January 6th, Emperor Milik II arrived. The Italians had established two outposts, both of which quickly fell to the Ethiopian army. Even so, Minilik, Taitu, Teklaimanut, and Alula admonished Makonin for giving the Italians time to fortify themselves and decided that Makonin and his men would pay the price and lead the assault. Ras Makonin began his attack on the 8th by battering the force all day with his artillery. The little caliber didn't have much effect on the walls, but the Italians were so amazed by the accuracy of the Ethiopian artillery that they said, it is impossible that they're not European. On the 9th, Ras Makonin launched an assault that resulted in a heavy loss of life. On the 11th, Ras Makonin's men used ladders to try to scale the walls under the cover of darkness. The result was more than 600 Ethiopians lay dead outside of Makali. When the news reached Ras Makonin, he stood grief-stricken outside of the force in an attempt to have himself killed. Interestingly, it was Ras Alula of Tigray, one of Ras Makonin's critics, who rushed over to force him to take cover. In the emperor's tents, Minilik and Makonin were crying. Finally, the emperor put to rest the popular belief at court that Ras Makonin was a traitor by embracing him. He then called off the attack temporarily. The ticket Aitu came up with the idea of targeting the Italian water supply. Her plan was to have the water supply blocked and guarded 24 hours a day. She also pledged to take personal care of the widows, orphans, and burial rites of any soldier who fell in battle. The Italian forces tried to regain the springs, but they were repeatedly thrown back. Thirst proved to be a more efficient weapon, and within 15 days, the Italians were asking to be relieved. It was the Empress' brilliant insight that led to an Ethiopian victory. When it came to the evacuation of the forts, many people judged the Emperor's action to be too kind. He provided the weakened foe with mules and escorts, making spectators worldwide question the depiction of Africans as savages in need of civilization. When speaking to Pietro Felter, who was sent to negotiate the evacuation of Megale, as Emilik said, quote, The fact that I let these helpless people who are surrounded and are suffering from thirst go free with their weapons should not be looked at as an act of foolishness. Mark that I did so out of respect for my kingdom. Now, if you are looking for peace, excellent. But if you still want war, bring your armies together with these ones and try it. End quote. Despite the mercy and restraint Ethiopia showed, the Italians still demanded that Ethiopia should accept a protectorate status. The Italians attempted to play the defeats off as a skirmish, attempting to convince themselves that the victories were dumb luck. After the victories at Ambalaji and Mekale, the stage was set for a third and more conclusive military confrontation that would take place at Adwa. May the sacrifice of the hundreds of Ethiopians who died outside the walls of Mekali never be forgotten. And with that, this concludes our very first episode on the events shaping up to the eventual Battle of Adwa. In the next episode, we'll go deeper into the details about the events of that monumentally historical battle, its ramifications, its heroes and heroines, and much, much more. We're going to be doing a thank you every episode in a different Ethiopian language. For this episode, we will be using Amadinya. Namaste, Ganalan. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to follow us on social media at Tariq Podcast on all major platforms. We hope you enjoyed our first episode. Tune in for more as we explore through our country's boundless history as we barely scratch the surface. Thank you for listening in and we hope to see you again.